We are extremely disappointed this morning to announce that uh, Dr. Corne Becker, who was to be our guest speaker this morning, was involved in an automobile accident uh, during the course of the week, um, uh, was diagnosed with a concussion and concussion symptoms, uh, doctors freedom to go home and said he could go back to work. But last night during the course of the evening, he uh, had recurring symptoms of a concussion and you and I both know how serious that is. And uh, he and his wife felt that it would not be right to uh, come and fulfill uh, what he desired to share with us this morning and just hold and wait that out for another time. I spoke with him early this morning, gave him every assurance that we understood, and we want him to be well. So he was uh, returning to the hospital to get more diagnoses and to uh, get the help of the physicians there. But uh, I told him, I said, brother, you have nothing to be concerned about. We are good. And uh, as long as Jesus shows up in the house, we're going to have a great time. Amen. So can we pray for Dr. Becker? Uh, and obviously you need to pray for me because uh, I only had an hour and a half or two hours of uh, preparation time. All right. So uh, so as you pray for me, let's really let's extend our faith for Dr. Becker. We know Jesus is is his great physician and he's in good hands. But let's just pray blessings over him, shall we? Uh, Father, we love you so much. We thank you that this day set aside for the body to come together and to exalt Jesus Christ and to be edified by the word of God. We're disappointed today that we could not receive as we had expected to today from Dr. Becker. But we thank you that Dr. Becker and, and I and everyone else who stands in this church, we're just merely instruments. Um, Lord, it's you. Uh, your presence is what makes the difference. And it's the Holy Spirit that teaches and leads us into truth. And today, out of the compassion of our heart for Corne. We just extend faith to cover him, even as he's in the hospital and, and having checkups and, and CAT scans and other procedures done. We pray for the wisdom of God to belong to the doctors and those caring for him. We thank you, Jesus, for your touch on his body. We ask, Lord, that you'd also uh, clarify to him the wisdom that he needs to be still and to rest and to be well before he goes back into his full gear mode. Father, so we pray uh, safeguarding around him and his wife and his son this particular day. We're also confident, Lord, that greater is he that is in us. And we thank you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit that resides in each of us and, and in me, Lord, that you would quicken me today as uh, the equipper and the one that is going to deliver and share the message. And we pray that it would bear good fruit in all of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. All right. I uh, couldn't help but think immediately as Dr. Becker communicated with me. Uh, immediately when you're in this position, which is not the first time I've been in this position, but when you're in this position, you immediately think of, uh, Lord, what, what would you have me to do or share this morning? And my heart immediately went, to a passage of scripture we're going to look at this morning found in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there as I introduce it. Uh, but we're going to turn to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2. My mind immediately went to the phrase, first love. First love. 
obviously uh, on a weekend that is uh, and a date that is associated with uh, Valentine's and the refreshing of our love for one another as husbands and wives. Um, it is a uh, an appropriate time to think about our love relationship with the Lord. Someone once said that very seldom does a man take one giant step from a life of virtue or goodness into a life of vice or corruption. Usually, he begins his journey into evil or corruption by taking little steps, minute steps, into the shaded areas, the areas tinted and colored a little bit, almost unnoticed by those around him. That was Edmund Burke speaking of how history has shown that people generally get off the track. Until one day, I think we would all agree, uh, one day people wake up and they're hardly aware that they, uh, there's been a turn in the journey. They find themselves firmly entangled in a life of sin or corruption. We see that again and again in the Bible, don't we? All the way back to the life of, of uh, Samson, in the book of Judges. Almost everybody knows this story. But the erosion that took place in Samson's life where it was, was not just all of a sudden Samson fell off the edge of the spiritual mountain. Happened little by little, gradually Samson fell by flirting with evil. Little by little, evil began to take over his life. And then, of course, we read one of the most startling verses in the Bible in the book of Judges when it says that the Lord had departed from Samson. And Samson didn't even realize it. That is a scary portrait. The Bible goes on. Of course, we know the story of Saul. How the king Saul, we see the sun coming up on his life. We see him standing in a cloudless day, a beautiful beginning for him as king. Uh, he was a man that loved God and that uh, everything about his life seemed to be, his trajectory was great. The future was bright. But gradually, gradually he turned his back on God. Gradually the storm clouds began to collect and finally we see Saul ending up slinking off to the witch of Endor, to a witch to get advice about what to do in his life. A tragic story. I wish I could tell you that those kinds of stories are relegated only to the Old Testament or only into Bible days. The problem is, is that that same step moving from a place of dedication, commitment, surrender, virtue, over to a place of turning one's back on the Lord and the values of Scripture happens frequently. It's happened to leader after leader. It's happened to church after church. It happens to Christian after Christian. And the Bible reminds us in Revelation chapter 2, the first five verses, reminds us with this remarkable example that it can happen to any of us. So I would like to turn your attention to the church of Ephesus and talk to you a little bit. I uh, will read this passage and then I'll give you a little bit of a background to help you out with it. In Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, 
These are the words of, sorry, just a second. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I'm sorry, my page is stuck together. I knew something didn't sound right. I apologize, folks. So where did that chapter go? (laughs) To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. Oh, you're feeling better about it now already? This is easier, actually lighter on us than the other one had been. But anyway, for whatever it's worth. (laughs) To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but aren't. You found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have left forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Wow. Those are uh, words that shake all of us to the core when we read of that kind of language. Let me see if I can set the scene for you for a moment. The apostle John is on the Isle of Patmos. And um, John had been banished there in 95 AD. And um, it was basically their Alcatraz. It was an island that was set off uh, the Aegean Sea, um, close to Miletus. And um, he was in prison there. And one day, You read the earlier part of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, you'll see this story. But John is there on the island of Patmos, and the scripture simply says, he was caught up in the spirit. Now, that's quite a mystical phrase, isn't it? One that invites some, some study, but it says he was caught up in the spirit, and then he heard a voice. And it describes, and I won't go back and read it all, but it tells us some very graphic things. He heard a voice. It was a trumpet-like voice. And he had a vision of Jesus. And in the vision, he saw Jesus as brilliant. His head and his hair were white and pure. His eyes were blazing fire. His feet uh, would shine like bronze. His face was like the sun. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And his words were like a sharp-edged sword. What a vision. And he sees this awesome, uh, this Jesus, risen, living, and moving around. And he saw him walking among seven golden lampstands. These were the lampstands that were familiar to the Jewish people in their temple and in the tabernacle. He saw Jesus walking in this vision. He sees him walking around these seven golden lampstands. Each of those the scripture goes on to tell us, represented one of the seven churches in Asia Minor. And he saw Jesus walking among the lampstands. And then Jesus gives him a very clear directive. 
tells him to take these letters to the angel of the church. Now, I don't have time to delve into that, but my personal conviction and that of most scholars is, wasn't speaking of the angel like you and I normally think, but the word there, angelos, means messenger. Likely, it was a letter sent to the lead messenger, the lead pastor that we might call today, uh, one who leads the church, and that letter was sent to them. Can you imagine getting a letter from Jesus? That'd wake you up, wouldn't it? Oh, my. <laughs> Jesus has sent me a letter, and all of a sudden, you read the letter. And that's what happened here. Might be helpful for me just for a moment to just, you know, remind you a little bit about the broader story and just you, you can study it yourself. But um, these first three chapters of the book of Revelation are remarkable. If you've never studied it, it it's, it's really staggering. Uh, the seven churches of Asia Minor were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those were the seven churches that he wrote individual letters to. Now, we're focusing today on the church of Ephesus. In this part of chapter 2 and chapter 3, he addresses a church at Ephesus. A lot we could tell you about the church at Ephesus, a lot we could tell you about the city of Ephesus, but a few comments might suffice. This was a very busy, prosperous city during these days. It was... In the midst of three great highways, it had become a uh, literally a commercial trade center, the major port of that region. It was located where today Turkey, modern-day Turkey, is. And um, in that city, in those days, not only was it a trade center, but it was also a religious center. It was the worldwide center for the worship of Diana, the goddess Diana a fertility goddess. Can you imagine? And they had built an extravagant temple to her. In this city of Ephesus, there were many things that were very common to them. Witchcraft was very common. Cultism, uh, obviously the, the weird uh, stuff that was happening at the temple of Diana um, as being a, a fertility goddess and all kinds of prostitution and things that were going on there. It was truly a wicked city, but it was a very prosperous, cosmopolitan city of that day. In that location, Jesus sent Aquila and Priscilla with Paul to plant a church. 52 AD, church was planted, and Paul departed to go on. This was on his second missionary journey, went on to do some of his other uh, visits, and he left Priscilla and Aquila there to establish this young body of believers in the city of Ephesus. Paul actually spent three years there before moving on. The church at Ephesus, maybe uh, as we're going to learn a lot about them today, let me just say this. Many historians and scholars would suggest that um, they likely had as much as 200,000 members in the church. It's a big church. They probably had more than one service on Sunday morning. Just thought I'd throw that in. Um. So this is the backdrop to this letter. So now we find among these other churches that he's going to send a letter to, Jesus is sending a letter to, uh, he sends one to Ephesus. I thought it might be helpful just to see it on a map very quickly. You can see uh, on the left-hand lower circle, that's the island of Patmos. And Ephesus there is also circled. So you can see that that's where John was. And then, of course, uh, the rest, Ephesus is a magnificent, even today, by the way, if you ever get a chance to travel there, Carrie and I were there, what, four years ago, five years ago, I think. 
and uh, maybe less. That is a fantastic ruins uh, that you can find today, the theater that's still uh, partially standing in the city of Ephesus. And uh, oh, there we are. Yay. Uh, there we are standing there by the famous library in the city of Ephesus. Now, let's jump right into what the word of God said. We read this letter written from Jesus to the church at Ephesus. I want to kind of break this down into three parts. I, might, I think it will get the message across that we want to hear today. What we want to ask is, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to us as he was speaking to the people and the leadership of the church at Ephesus? Is it relevant for us today? We find in these few verses three primary things. We'll find a commendation. First of all, a commendation, the good things that they were doing, what they had, what their assets were, the positive strengths of that church. Secondly, we will see a complaint. So Jesus says, you're doing well here, but we need to talk about this. And he gives his complaint. And thirdly, he gave a command that was obviously connected to the complaint that he gave. So let's begin with the commendation. Uh, by the way, I think there's great wisdom in communication just as a sidebar observation. When you communicate some, with someone, particularly when you're bringing correction, it's always good to start off positive. It's always good. If there is something positive, start there. And Jesus did. And there were positive things here about this church. Let me just reread that section to you, if I may, please. He starts off here in verses 2 and verses 3. And he said, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. There were three things in particular that Jesus spoke of. Number one, he spoke of their diligent labor. Listen, remind yourself, Ephesus was a difficult place to live, much less to live as a Christian. It was a, different, a difficult, difficult city to be in the very small minority of Christians in such an ungodly pagan society. And so for Jesus to say, here are the things you're doing well. First of all, you are hard workers. Y'all work really hard. I mean, you, you don't, you're not lazy. You're diligent. You work hard. The labor there, the, the word there, I know your works. The word there literally means work that is a result of laboring even to the point of being weary and exhausted. He was saying, these are people that work hard. Listen, just because you work hard, just because you say, I serve Jesus, I do this, I do this, just because all that may be true doesn't mean there's not something going on spiritually that you need to be keenly aware of. He commended them. He congratulated them that they were not, uh, that they were not an inactive church. They were busy. The, Ephesus was known as a beehive of Christian activity. It was known as a place of the five-fold gift ministry. Apostles and prophets and, and uh, pastors and teachers and evangelists came in and came out. and There was always this hub of activity. It was a, a, a church that had a lot going on. And he didn't rebuke them for that. He actually commended them because everyone was being diligent, working and serving God in that church. The second thing he commended them for was their disciplined endurance. That's just my language. The word that's used here in the scripture in the New International Version is the word perseverance. You have persevered. In the King James Version, the word is you have been patient. Really, that King James word patience is really a kind of a namby-pamby word for what's really meant here. 
The idea is of disciplined endurance means that you're able to stand the for the winds, the frontal winds against you. How many times have you ever been driving through a real major storm and you're driving against a, law, a, a strong headwind and sometimes it actually you feel like it's actually going to take your car off the road? Y'all been there? You know what I'm talking about? It's that same sense of, of pressing forward even though there's opposition and adversity blowing against you. It's the picture of a, a little plant coming up from the ground and there's intense heat and yet the plant just says, I will survive. I am going to make it. It is the Greek word hupomene and it's translated as patience in the King James Version, perseverance in other words as well. But that's what it means. It means disciplined endurance, the ability to thrive under strain. Under pressure. To shoulder up under the load. You say, what kind of load did the Ephesians have? Well, they were under political pressure. They were under economic pressures at the time. And clearly they were facing a lot of spiritual pressure and attack. And yet we're told that they endured that. Before I go to the, the third one, the discerning ears, can I just say to you that I think there's a lot of parallels between the church at Ephesus and where the Lord's church is today in our country. Yes, yes. A lot of parallels. Um, it's hard to endure and to be diligent when you see things happening under your feet in the culture and the land in which you live. And yet, I'm encouraged when I think America's going to hell in a handbasket and I'm I'm at a point of discouragement, which I'm sure none of you ever get discouraged. When I read the cultural signposts, and I go, oh, Jesus. I went back and reread this this week and went, you know, those, those Christians back there were dealing with a whole lot worse than we're dealing with in this nation. And uh, Jesus is commending them. He said, man, you were diligent. You were always enduring it's hard place to serve but you did it then the third thing he complimented them on he said also you have had discerning ears discerning ears he spoke of that the fact that they had not tolerated false ministry he was saying you have held true to the word of god You've held true. You've held on. You have picked up when there's error, when there's been false apostles, false ministries. Listen, for every true ministry, there is a counterfeit false ministry. You hear that? For every true valid ministry, there is a counterfeit. And they had counterfeit. Add to the paganism that they were living in in the city of Ephesus. Then add to that, they have a bunch of false ministers floating through because it was the popular church to go to. So how are those people coming in, going out? But they had picked up moments in the spirit. This is something's not quite right here. And he's commending the pastor here, the shepherd, for not allowing that error to have control. They recognized false ministries. They had tested the spirits as they were supposed to. They had held on to doctrinal purity. And he was commending them for it. How many of y'all know there's a lot of weirdness that goes around the body of Christ today? If you're not aware of that, then bless you for that. I'm glad that you're uh, able to ignore it. There's everything that is being taught, everything that's being said. I have the highest regard for many um, ministries that are very high profile and many of those that are on our airwaves. But just because they're high profile does not mean that they're all ministering truth at all times. 
we must be discerning. And if we're going to have a commendation like this one, we better be attentive to make sure that what? How do we evaluate those things? Right here. Right here. That's our safety. So this church had a lot of good things going on. See them? Your diligent labor, your disciplined endurance, your discerning ears. You're a good church. I mean, most of us say, wow, that's a, that's a good church. That's a healthy church. Those are strong points, wouldn't you? Say, so I might even want to attend that church. But Jesus' letter was not finished. He wasn't finished. He says, however, there's some things that you are lacking. That's really a nice way <laughs> to put it. He said, there's some things that you really need to recognize. And what does he say to them? Here is the complaint, what they lacked in verse 4. What happened? They had abandoned their first love. Abandoned, left their first love relationship with Jesus. In my early years in, uh, of my walk as a teenager, uh, there was a ministry that I can say in some ways... Uh, this man's ministry really helped to mentor me in some basic fundamentals. And some of you may recognize the name. His name was Bill Gothard. Way back that ages anyone who recognizes that name. But he once said this. And I remember writing it down in my Bible. And this is what he said. He said, in every organization, there are seeds of disintegration. In every organization, there are seeds of disintegration. What he meant was that in any grouping, gathering, corporation, business, institution, church, you have to be careful that the things that are planted as seeds don't grow up and destroy. So you always have to be attentive to your garden, right? You always have to watch that garden to see when, when weeds crop up. Because if you let those weeds continue on, oh man, it's a pain to get them out later, right? So right after you reseed your lawn, you better go and get all those extra seed out of your flower beds because I promise you in a few months it's going to be a whole lot more difficult to pick them out. Am I right? True, true. In every organization, in the church at Ephesus, there were seeds planted of disintegration that were allowed to continue. And now we find them at a dangerous place. A dangerous place. What is the idea here of forsaken in some translations or the word left? What does that suggest? It suggests someone who has pulled back cooled off someone that has fallen as john stott once said they had fallen from the early heights of their devotion to christ which they had climbed and ephesus had descended to the plains of mediocrity just mediocrity so don't get too critical of the ephesians they had just become mediocre after their first flush of ecstasy had passed, erosion had set in. What is the nature of erosion? Think about this with me just for a moment. What does it mean for something to erode? It means to lose ground, not overnight, but slowly, gradually, something is undermining the strength or uh, the, the foundation or whatever it may be. And Carrie and I relocated here from Texas, uh, from Texas to Virginia uh, back in the early 1990s. We were totally unfamiliar with 
with what we know now as nor'easters. Now, we're a bunch of outsiders. In Texas, we had no nor'easters. All right, we had other things. We didn't have a nor'easter. So I remember saying to friends, I said, what is that? They said, well, you'll find out soon. You live here a little while, you'll, you'll, you'll confront some nor'easters. And I was, remember being very surprised when I read reports of how much the city of Virginia Beach was spending to replenish the sand at places like Sandbridge and along the oceanfront that had eroded. A nor'easter blow in, next thing you know, you see a bunch of dumb trucks of sand going on to the beach. Am I right? I thought, what is the deal? And it just spoke to me on a spiritual level that, you know, it doesn't take but a weekend sometimes <laughs> to have some erosion. It doesn't take too many things too long sometimes to see signs of erosion. The problem with erosion is it is so gradual, many times we don't pick up on it. it happens just incipiently. And then we wake up one day, we go, oh no, that's what happened to the church. Jesus is trying to shock them into awareness that erosion, spiritual erosion, had been occurring in their life. This is what they lacked. Jesus predicted that this would happen in general, which, by the way, you and I need to be warned by it. Matthew chapter 24, he's speaking of the last days. Verse 12, this is what Jesus said. He predicted this. Most men's love will grow cold. When wickedness multiplies. I'm going to read that again. Maybe a translation you haven't read. Most men's love will grow cold when wickedness multiplies. May I ask you something? How many of you would just agree that in the, the stuff that's going on in our world today, that wickedness is on the rise? If you want to argue that, talk to me another day. I'm not in the mood today. But... Um, Listen to that verse. In the last days, most people's love for God is going to grow cold. When wickedness multiplies, people's commitments are affected by the pressures of society and culture that are not based on the right truths. Man, that's a powerful scripture. Here we simply find a church that had fallen into that same pattern. This whole idea of leaving your first love uh, strikes a very deep chord with me. It's speaking of the relationship of the church and as Christians to Jesus Christ as our head. Jesus said in, Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven two, I betrothed you to Christ, he said to the church at Corinth. Speaking of this devotion love-based relationship. The Christian life, listen carefully, is essentially boiled down to this. Christian life is not about religion. It is a relationship. It is a love relationship between you and Jesus. If you want to think about it, even the Bible is a love letter written to us. Everything about this Christian life and experience, we can look through the lens of love and see if you boil it down, it really is just all about a love relationship, isn't it? But this church, the Bible said, had abandoned their first love. Now, what is first love? What does that mean? Their first love. Come on. Some of you know what first love is. 
Do you remember when you first began to meet, spend time with, date? When you fell in love with your bride, with your groom? It's a great day to remember that. You remember that? After time. That first initial love that felt so vibrant, that felt so intense, that felt so deep, if not properly cared for, can erode. Am I right? Not preaching about marriage day. I did that last week. But I'm just saying that that first love, heart and commitment and devotion can erode into a life that's just going through the motions. Carrie and I have been married for 40 years. And let me just tell you, you have to revisit regularly. If you want to keep that first love strong, you have to revisit that regularly and continue to invest in your marriage. Someone say amen. amen. Do you know what I'm saying? It's the same thing with Jesus. How many of you have been following Christ for more than five years? Would you raise your hand? Okay. I came to the Lord when I was five years old. Five years old. So that gives me a few years as a follower of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, sometimes when I read that passage, it was written to the Ephesians, man, I'm convicted. What happened to that level of zeal that I remember? What happened to that radical faith, sometimes maybe not totally based on uh, good wisdom, but nonetheless, that faith that was willing just to take a step and go for it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And I say, you know, all of that was simply rooted in a first love connection with Jesus. As a young man, the Holy Spirit visited me when I was 17 and shook my world up, shook my future up, and changed my course and my trajectory. Man, it wasn't anything I wouldn't do for Christ. You asked me that question today? Yeah, I, I, I would say yes, I'll do anything for him. But we have to work at developing that devotion, and we can't take it for granted. Or else you end up just like the Ephesian church. And Jesus said, yeah, you're, you know, on the outside, everybody thinks you're a great church, and you've done this right, you've done this right, you've done this right. But you have abandoned the first love intensity, the first love intimacy that you once had. Ooh, that is strong. I just wanted to suggest there are a couple of marks because I know the question that comes to your mind is, how do I know whether this has application to me or not? Well, there's a few marks that I've noticed consistently, just patterns I've observed in people's lives over the years as well as in mine. There's some marks that come up of abandoned first love. Number one is legalism. That's when it's more about the rules than the relationship. It's more about the do's and don'ts than it is about that deep heart connection. Lethargy can also be a sign or a mark of this. Lethargy simply has to do with a lifeless kind of lethargic uh, walk and behavior. Uh, just going through the motions. Just go on. It's just time for church. Well, it's, you know, it's the, what night of the week is this? Oh, Got to go Bible study. That's lethargy. And a loss of passion. You know what I'm talking about. 
There's one thing to say, yeah, I love, I love my wife. I love my husband. There's another thing to say, I am passionately in love with you. Am I right? And just putting it on a card once a year isn't enough. Just thought I'd throw that in. So those are some marks of an abandoned first love relationship. There's also a couple of things I'll point out as manifestations of a first love. When you are in that first love place, there are a few things that you should expect to see. Number one, it's intimate. Heart to heart, deep, intimate. You should know by now whether or not you're in a relationship that's intimate or whether it's just acquaintance or whether it's just, yeah, I know them by name. But I really Intimacy means what? You're heart to heart. It's wide open, man. It's full-throated. It's whatever, you know, you know everything about me. I know everything about you. I, anything I feel I, I want to share with you, you can share with me anything. And, and, and a level of connection and intimacy, that's what Jesus wants with you and me. And you can't have that unless it's that first love type of passion. Wow, it's intimate. Number two, first love is usually enthusiastic. When I see a Christian says, I love Jesus. They look like they've been baptized in lemon juice, you know. <laughs> that kind of a, y'all ever met people like that? They say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But you wouldn't know it by their joy level. I think first love speaks of being enthusiastic about the relationship, not passive. Number three is first love is always obedient. God tells us, if you love me, you'll what? You'll obey my commandments. They go hand in hand. It's not about a legalistic obedience, but it's about our, our following the word of God and our going about Christian behavior a certain way is a result of the right kind of loving relationship. Why do I do that? Why should I give? Not because it's just scripture. I just, that's a legalistic approach and that'll rob you over time. The reason that I give is because I love God. Yeah. And I want to give, I want to tithe out of love for him. Why should I want to share the good news with other people? Not because I have a checkoff box or I get a gold star at Sunday school, but because I love God enough, I don't want to see other people miss out on what I know is the truth. That's obedience, but it's not a lethargic, legalistic obedience. Man, I don't want any part of that kind of deal. I promise you, I will never allow a church that I'm leading to ever become legalistic. It sucks the very spiritual life. Out of it. So sad. People drift into that. The fourth characteristic of a first love relationship is that it's sacrificial. It's always sacrificial. True love means you sacrifice. And uh, you know what? In serving Jesus, there's some sacrifices. That you make because you love him. And you, you know, it, it really keeps everything in perspective, particularly if you've had a past, a past life that's been controlled by certain desires and, and interests and certain things. You say, well, I don't know if I want to give that up. <laughs> when you really fall in love with Jesus, there's no problem to give that up. The benefits of the kingdom of God so far outweigh what the world has to offer. I mean, it pales in comparison. So why can't we drop that, leave that, turn away from this or that? And some of us have fallen to this um, abandonment of our first love 
And we've simply returned to old ways of living that may not be on its face like, oh, that's evil. But it's simply not intimate, enthusiastic, obedient, and sacrificial. It's so easy to slip into this. So let me wrap up with the third part, which is the command. So we looked at the commendation. He said, you're a good, you're a good church. You're doing a lot of good things. We looked at the specifics. Secondly, he said, now there's some, something I need to correct you on. And we just read the correction. Isn't it interesting how he went right to the heart? He didn't give some lengthy list of things that they were doing wrong. Did you notice that? It just says, you know, it all boils down to just one thing. You have simply left your first love. There, I, I believe there would have been a lot of things he could have listed. But he went right for the jugular. And that is the taproot to it all. What is your love relationship like with Jesus Christ? How intimate? How passionate? He leaves them not hanging. He didn't just say these are things that are wrong. You know, all this stuff is wrong. And then say just end the letter. Sincerely, Jesus Christ. He didn't do that. He gave them direction. Aren't you glad he's practical about this? Here's what you need to do. And he gave them a command. And they're all, I, just, I just broke it down, but it's right there in the scripture. He said, this is what I have against you. And then in verse 5, he says, number one, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So I just broke it down to three things. Number one, he said, remember. Sometimes we have to just stop and remember that first date. We have to stop and remember the deep exchanges that we shared in anticipation of the wedding day coming. I mean, you know, after 40 years, it's easy to forget some of that. Some of you can't relate yet. I'm just telling you, you have to remember to get your first love back got to first of all just start remembering just pause and in just a moment we'll do this together I, i'm just going to ask you to remember this morning where you once were in your first love relation some of you say i'm i'm there now great bless you i'm glad sometimes you just have to stop and remember and reflect he said specifically remember the heights that you've fallen from they had been up here in terms of their spiritual intensity in life he said they had fallen out of that. Remember the very height. He's suggesting now you're here. Remember where it was that you fell from. Before the erosion took place, remember where you were. Number one, remember. Number two, he says, repent. The word metanoia simply means to have a change of heart, a change of attitude. That means the change of direction. It means you're going one direction. You have a change of heart, a change of attitude. You turn around, you go the other direction. That's what repent means. Repent does not mean being sorry you got caught. Repent doesn't mean, mm, this was a tough letter. Repent means something deep on the inside of you says, I've been, I've been convicted by God. I'm headed the wrong direction. We're sliding off the edge. Erosion is affecting my life. And you say, I'm going to turn back and go the right other direction repentance results in changed behavior it is an attitude of the heart but it results in a changed life this who this remember who he's talking to he's not talking to a bunch of unevangelized sinners he's talking to the church he's talking to christians 
And he said to them, you repent. Did you know that repentance is the lost art of Christians today? Most Christians say, oh yeah, I did that 38 years ago. I did that. Yeah, I remember. Repentance is just as relevant for our ongoing spiritual development as it was for when we first came to Christ. Repent and believe. Maybe today we just need to repent and believe. He said, repent. Not just emotional. Not just feeling bad. But true repentance. Number three, I just termed it repeat. So it was easy for me to remember. He simply put it this way. Go back and start doing the things that you used to do. Some people call it first works. First love, first works. What are first works? Um, if I can just continue to kind of relate it to relationships. Um, maybe it's a place that you used to go and spend time together. So as you remember and then you repent and maybe you say, you know, maybe we ought to go back to that same restaurant at that same location so we can just help ourselves to remember. Go back and repeat some of the sacrificial things that love asks of you. On a spiritual level, what are the things that maybe you used to do that were a part of your first young, vibrant years of following zealously after Jesus? What are some of those things that maybe have fallen to the wayside? Think about maybe what I need to go back and repeat those same things. Jesus is not talking about being repetitious in a, in a negative way. He's saying, go, to back, go back and repeat the, the good things. I've had quite a number of you come to me after our 21 days of prayer and say, man, I needed that. Man, I needed that. I hadn't fasted in years. Man, I needed that. That's what I'm talking about. Three things he said. Remember, repent, repeat. I believe that one of the greatest dangers for any of us today, whether you're there now or maybe down the road, is to realize when we have begun to slowly shift away from our first love attitude and heart toward Jesus Christ. You say, yeah, this is, hopefully this works for some people. You know, I'm really not there. Um, I think it's a dangerous posture to take when we assume we cannot fall. When we assume everything's going to be all right all the time. And thus, Jesus wrote a letter. He wrote a letter, a personal letter. John, write these things down, send it to that church. I think it has great relevancy to where the body of Christ at large is today. And obviously, we need to be personal in our application, right? Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Crystal's going to come and just bless you as you leave today with a word of blessing over you. But I just want to ask you to pray with me. Our time is up. I'm going to pause literally for 30 seconds. What I want to pause for is for you to do some remembering. So if you are here today and you know Jesus Christ personally, I want you to think back. I want to reflect upon what that was like.
what the feeling was, what that depth of relationship was like. Think of the time that you were at your greatest spiritual height. Think of that for a moment. I'll give you 30 seconds to do that and then we'll close with prayer. Now, maybe you're here and you didn't have anything to think back on. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that's the result of a born-again experience, you can have it today. And today, you can make that decision. I want to be a follower of Jesus. Lord, I'm ready to make that kind of first love commitment. I've never been there, but I'm ready to do that. Or maybe you're here and you have been far from God. Maybe you've been running hard the wrong direction. And today, you say, I'm ready, Pastor. I'm ready to come back to Jesus Christ personally. Can I ask you just for a moment, if you're in either one of those conditions, and today you want this to be your day of returning to first love, a right love relationship, just raise your hand if you're there. Anyone here that needs to make that decision for Christ? Anyone at all? God bless you. God bless you, sir. Anyone else? Okay. I'm going to ask that our prayer teams are going to come forward. If you raise your hand, I'm going to pray for you right now, but I want you to leave your seat as soon as I get through praying. and Come up to one of these prayer teams and tell them what you decided today. Tell them the decision you made in your heart. Just tell them, and uh, we won't make a big spectacle out of it. But it's important that we do what we say and mean in our heart, that we walk that out. How many of you today... Christians, you love Jesus, but today maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about something that maybe has begun to erode in some way. Would you just raise your hand to Jesus, say, Lord, that, yeah. So, Lord, today we don't just remember. We take the next step and we repent. We choose a change of direction because you convicted our hearts. And then, Lord, let us walk out of this place today repeating Choosing to repeat first works. Those things that were evident of a first love relationship with you. In Jesus' name. Prayer teams are going to be right here. They're waiting for you to come forward. If you have any other prayer requests or needs today, you come and let them minister to you. And Krista will bless you as you go. You just look at, up at me just for a second. I just want to bless you today that God would bless the work of your hands and that everything that you do, that he would display his glory through you. I bless your love relationship with the Father this morning, that where in the places that has grown cold and lukewarm, I bless your love relationship to be set on fire again, to be renewed, to be transformed. And I bless your homes this morning that the holy word of God would cling to your hearts and your minds and that your homes would be filled with the love of a father whose relationships you are fully engaged in. So I bless us this morning to re-enter into that full engagement of a love relationship with Jesus Christ.
We want to say happy Valentine's Day to you all. And God bless you. Have a wonderful week.